Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. I remember an SFA staff supper in Charleston at FIG over 10 years ago where we ordered a bottle of wine from Idaho. We didn't exactly order it as a dare. After all, FIG has one of the country's best and most trusted beverage programs. We were mostly curious. Yeah, we were kind of game. If they like it, we figured we'd like it. And and we did. It, it was this perfect wine, especially when paired with their kind of crazy trained, delicious chicken liver pate. I haven't had a wine from Idaho since, but I haven't forgotten that one. And I try another. Fast forward to an SFA scout for our field trip to Richmond, Virginia. And we're dining at the Roosevelt and every wine on the list is from Virginia. Every single one. The sommelier had lots of advice. And again, we drank very, very well. And unlike the Idaho experience, Virginia wines aren't so hard to find, especially at the SFA Fall Symposium. The Virginia Wine Board is an SFA donor, and as part of that relationship, Virginia wine is what we pour during the weekend. And our relationship with the Virginia Wine Board almost caused us to kill this story, because they're a donor. So a story about Virginia wines seemed too cozy. We greenlit this piece because telling the story of Gabriella Rossi, an Italian immigrant who made a reality out of Thomas Jefferson's vision of Virginia as a wine region, well, that's our jam. It's also our juice. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Producer Wilson Sayer leads our trek through the vineyards and pressing rooms of Virginia. About 20 minutes south of Charlottesville, Virginia, up a windy gravel driveway past a small grape vineyard, is a tan-colored house with what looks like a shed next to it. Around the shed stand barrels and tanks and a giant fruit press. This seemingly small operation is the Gabriele Rause Winery, named for a humble giant in today's Virginia wine scene. To Rause, wine is a simple labor of appreciation, time, and patience. It's uh, beautiful what you can uh, 
find out if you do your job properly without any rush, without any, you know, trying to get the job done. Several workers, including Rousey's son, take small plastic pails that look like mop buckets full of grapes from the tank in the shed where they were fermenting to this giant press. It's round, made up of small wooden boards, almost like a straight-sided barrel, but with small gaps in between the planks to allow the juice to run out. You know, all the red grapes, they are the stem first, and then they are fermented in the tank with the skin in contact with the, with the juice. And when the fermentation is finished, you separate the berries from the juice. When the cylinder is full, Rousey's son tamps down the bulging pile of maroon grapes. He centers the whole lot under a pneumatic press and turns it on. So there's this big press that is pushing on top of the pile of fermented grapes and it's just pushing out the liquid. A small stream of dark red liquid drips from between the wooden slats and into a holding vat. Everywhere smells like beautiful red wine. It perfumes the air and almost invites you to stick your tongue under the stream. After lunch, they'll lift the press, compost the grape skins, much to the joy of the neighborhood deer, squirrels, and birds, and they'll have another tank full of wine. It seems simple enough, but making wine like this in Virginia has not been easy. It's taken the better part of 400 years of trial and error to get wine in Virginia bottled, sold, and drunk. That put Virginia behind winemakers in California and way behind their European counterparts. And Gabriella Rousey is the man who has helped wrestle this new renaissance in Virginia winemaking into existence. In doing so, he's helped fulfill the dream of a very well-known Virginian. He's very small and very crowded sometimes, so... Rousey doesn't just make his own wine. He oversees the grounds and grapes here at Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson. To many people, Jefferson is the father of wine in Virginia. Rousey shows off Jefferson's wine cellar and its original security measures. This is the only door at Monticello which was all reinforced to be sure nobody was coming in. It's really beautiful that you realize how precious it was what was stored in this place. This wine cellar is underneath the main house off of a service corridor full of sightseers. It's dark and cool. When archaeology decided to do some digging here, I asked them, what did you find? They said, nothing. I said, really nothing? We're just broken glasses. And they said, can I look at them? And so they showed them to me, and they were all black, right? And said, I love that Jefferson discovered a long time ago that the best way to preserve wine was dark glass, right? He points to one of the glass bottles on display that they discovered. Uh, I think this is Chateau Lafitte. Does that still exist? Chateau Lafitte, oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go to France today and you look which are the best uh, winery, the best vineyard, they are the one that Jefferson told us that they were the best wine, the best vineyard. Eh? While Jefferson is often cited as the visionary for Virginia wine, the quest for a serious industry in the state started even before his time. I mean, you could say that the origins of wine in Virginia begin with the dropping of anchor uh, at Jamestown. 
Todd Kleiman is a food writer and wrote a book that chronicles some of the wonderful and surprising history of wine in Virginia called Wild Vine. Early on in the Jamestown colony, the ad hoc government passed a law requiring each adult man to plant grapevines. But the British were not particularly advanced in their knowledge of winemaking. It was trial and error and, and generations repeating the mistakes of the previous generation. And much of the wine that they produced was not good. And in the literature that I read, I was, I was struck again and again by the phrase that the wine had the, the bouquet of wet dog. And that valiant effort to produce wine with fewer canine notes continued through the late 1700s. The one who was probably most fervent about it and most passionate about it was Thomas Jefferson. Kleiman says that was in part because Jefferson just loved wine, drinking and collecting it. I think also there was a sense that he had that if the United States was to be a cultural entity to, to rival Europe, to be there alongside of France or in England, that it had to have its own grape and had to produce wine. He tried for 50 years, and then he failed spectacularly. Jefferson, at one point ambassador to France, loved French and Italian wines. Most grapes grown in Europe are what's called vinifera grapes. Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, and Pinot Grigio, these are all types of vinifera grapes. They're native to the Mediterranean and Central Europe, some parts of Asia, but not North America. Virginia can be incredibly humid with big temperature swings, which isn't good for vinifera grapes. Mildew, rotting, overly abundant fruit, these are not things you want with your wine grapes. But it's what you get when vinifera grapes meet the Virginia climate, even if you're Thomas Jefferson. There are Jefferson apologists in the wine world, just like there are Jefferson apologists in the world of politics and, and, and race. But he failed. Despite Jefferson's spectacular failure, people clung to his vision and tried to make Virginia wine a reality. And there are some real strides, not with vinifera or European grapes, but with grapes bred with native varieties called hybrids. One in particular, the Norton grape, was developed by a bored and talented Virginia doctor named Daniel Norton. And that Norton grape gained widespread popularity. That discovery forms eventually the backbone of the wine industry in Missouri. To our ears in the 21st century, that sounds bizarre, but Missouri was the Napa Valley of the United States uh, prior to the Civil War. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, Virginia was also one of the top wine producers in the U.S. And the Norton grape was one of the foundations of that industry. Ulysses Grant drank Norton. It was a grape that, and a wine, that went to the leading world exhibition at the time in, in Austria. And it won a gold medal. And one of the most prominent critics at the time said he believed that Norton uh, and America together would create uh, one, of the, one of the world's great wine regions. And of course, it never happened. It didn't happen because of prohibition. Not only did prohibition shut down American vineyards, it killed the industry that worked with native and hybrid grape varieties. Casks were emptied and vines ripped up. Future wine endeavors across the United States would focus primarily on trying to grow the grapes of Europe. That's why when the U.S. wine industry reemerged, it centered on the West Coast, in a climate well-suited to grow European grapes. 
During and after Prohibition, Virginia growers lost the know-how to grow grapes for wine. So the wine industry largely disappeared. And didn't get restarted until the 80s. Um, And then, of course, in the 80s, when it does restart, it's restarted without any continuity, without any knowledge behind it, with people who are just kind of taking a stab in the dark. And Gabriella Rause was one of the first. What percentage of the vines in this region do you think you've touched? I don't know. I would say 70 percent, you know. I had a journalist who asked me to write down all the vineyards that I've been involved with. And I wrote down 57 vineyards all over Virginia. And then after three days, I added three more. And then after a week, I added five more. A couple of weeks, I added two more. And she said, stop, this is enough. What Rousey has done has inspired a whole new generation of winemakers in Virginia, who are together trying to figure out what Virginia wine can be. When we come back, we'll learn what might be next for Virginia wine and about how those wines are making their way into contemporary dining rooms. But first... It's Saturday morning with your family, and you're in charge of breakfast. Everybody wants their egg cooked a different way, of course, but all agree on bacon as the side. But the eggs will be no problem, because you own Lodge's cast iron bacon and egg griddle. It has a divided three-compartment design and a pour spout on the griddle side to help you drain and save that valuable bacon grease. This made-to-order breakfast will be easy. As the oldest American manufacturer of cast iron cookware, Lodge knows a thing or two about quality. Lodge's bacon and egg griddle, the third and latest item in the Lodge Cast Iron Legacy Series, may be purchased online at lodgecastiron.com. For their commitment to quality cookware and their longtime support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Gabriele Rausi grew up in the Veneto wine region of northeast Italy. His family, like many, had a bit of land they grew grapes on. So tending vines was familiar. They'd make a little wine themselves. The rest of the grapes they'd sell to a cooperative. After studying plant pathology at university in Milan, Rausi discovered his love of working the land. Because I was working 12 hours a day, every day. I didn't need to talk to anybody. I was just working all day. He was on a tractor, on a combine, or doing things by hand, right? He eventually landed in Virginia to help a friend of his dad's from Rotary Club work on a vineyard. So we start to go around and, uh, you know, look for a place. And actually, he ended up to choose Barbusy, which was a beautiful, a beautiful spot. And uh, he gave me some money and said, now try to find some vines, prepare the soil, and I wanted to plant the vineyard. So it was very interesting because I think I bought all the vines I could find in the United States. Barbersville would become one of the first post-Prohibition vineyards in Virginia, and one of the first to try their hand at growing European vinifera grapes. 
Their efforts, though, were not overwhelmingly embraced by the state's agricultural establishment. The commissioner opened his drawer, pulled out a box of cigar, and he said, the future of Virginia is tobacco. When I translate to my boss, my boss said, let's go. Rause and his boss kept pushing forward and made wine with some of the early grapes they got. They'd bottle it for themselves and as gifts for friends. Who were my friends? I didn't know anybody, so the plumber, the electrician, the people, you know, who were selling me tools. Sometimes he'd see a bottle that he'd gifted to one person show up at someone else's house. Interesting. That's the word, interesting. They never said it was good. They said it was interesting. I love it. <laughs> because when I, somebody talk about something, I don't know what it is, I said interesting. <laughs> After a few years, Rause was getting good grapes off of his vines. And Barbersville was making award-winning wine. His secret to success was, in his mind, simple. I was happy to work all day. You know, I assure you that for me, that was the most important thing, to physically work all day. Right? Because of Virginia's humidity, some vines, like vinifera, the European grapes, require more hands-on attention, unlike in places where arid conditions are more favorable. Rause spent hours upon hours in the vineyards, he grafted vines in a more complicated way, resulting in much sturdier and healthier plants. He was one of the first people to successfully make wine from vinifera in modern-day Virginia. And Barbersville, that first vineyard and winery, is to this day one of the most decorated and respected in the state and ranks as one of the best vineyards nationwide. Part of their success came from a willingness to adapt. I love that American change are able to change quickly and go in a different direction if they realize that going in a different direction is better for them. Because I remember my father was drinking only wine from my region, Veneto, from Piedmont, and Champagne. Every wine from any other region, he would say, no, I mean, that's what I like, that's what I drink. This has been a blessing and a challenge for Virginia wineries who are now trying to make a name for themselves outside of the state, to be taken as seriously as their counterparts in California, Italy, or France. Virginia doesn't have the history or regulations of a place like France, or the reputation. Cappy Pete is a sommelier and beverage director at Ashley Christensen's Restaurants in North Carolina. She's worked at restaurants like Husk in Charleston, South Carolina, that have carried some Virginia wines. In the old world, uh, in France in particular, there's a lot of um, regulation behind what grapes are allowed to be grown and how you produce those wines. And so in order to label a certain wine by the region, you have to be following those regulations. These regulations come from hundreds of years of growing grapes and making wine. Over time, particular regions and subregions decided which grapes and winemaking practices produced the best wine to reflect that particular place. That's terroir. But these rules don't really exist in the U.S. While there are certainly areas that have learned that a certain grape variety does best in that region, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon and Napa Valley, they still do a ton of experimentation with other grape varieties because the industry and wine growing as a whole is much younger compared to that in Europe. And even younger than the California wine industry is Virginia's, at least this time around. I think this is a new era for Virginia in that this open-mindedness towards what we can make is going to drive the next generations of planting and uh, it'll probably make for wines that are both higher quality, more delicious, and for uh, 
easier farming. Ben Jordan is the winemaker at Early Mountain Vineyards and two side projects, Lightwell Survey Wines and Midland. He got his start in the business in California as a salesman, then caught the winemaking bug and decided to come back to his home state of Virginia, drawn to the nascent wine movement Rousey and others started. Around the same time Jordan moved back to Virginia, this natural wine movement started to take off. Natural wine is a sort of catch-all phrase for lots of different methods of making wine without as much manipulation in the cellar. Natural wines tend to be much funkier and taste like sour beer or kombucha. Virginia isn't necessarily making its name producing natural wine, but Jordan says that movement helped introduce wine drinkers to a whole new spectrum of flavors and ideas. It's not just about the grape variety. It's not even just about like the famous region that it's come from. It's about the person, you know, what they're doing in the vineyards and what what they're doing or what they're not doing in the cellar. Um, The average consumer is much more open-minded. And that has been helpful for a place like Virginia, which produces wine that tastes different even from those made in California. The grounds at Early Mountain in Madison, Virginia are beautiful. Rows of grapevines curve along the surrounding hills. Bunches of grapes hang below metal wires that support the vines. What Ben Jordan grows here has changed over time, as they've learned what does and does not grow well. So when we originally started working with these grapes, this was the best block that we had available to us, and so it was going to be in our Bordeaux-style red. Um, and that was, we realized that was forcing something to be something that it didn't want to be. Um, and so as we've evolved um, the farming and what we're, what we're making, this has become for rosé, come back a week, two weeks later and pick for the the lighter red. At the bottom of the hill, surrounded by more vineyards, is a large stone-clad building, the winery's tasting room. For a long time, this was the reach of Virginia wines, from the vineyard to the beautiful tasting rooms and not much further. But that's starting to change as more and more Virginia wines appear on restaurant wine lists and on store shelves. Obviously, we just get our name out there and people are more aware other than just the the tourists that come to the state. But getting outside of tasting rooms and especially outside of the state can be hard. While people are open-minded, I think you're you're starting a step behind with them already believing that quality wine is not coming out of the Carolinas or out of Virginia or any, you know, anywhere in the South, essentially. Samoye Cappy Pete again. Price point is a big thing. Also, just availability. I think that even if they do have, you know, a good bit of land, they're just, the vines are young, they're not producing a ton of wine, and sales. I mean, you almost have to staff a person who's going to be visiting these large markets and kind of, you know, preaching the gospel of Virginia wines. She says in a world where there's so much good wine available, sometimes it just takes time to break through. These days, Gabriela Rause spends a lot of his time at Monticello, tending to Jefferson's vines. This is exactly the place where he had the grapes. It's exactly the same. You know, he actually planted vines 10 times, right? The most important planting, he planted 24 varieties. That's a lot of different grapes for the average vineyard. Rause believes that what Jefferson did back in the 1800s was not a failure but a vital and necessary step in a long journey of experimentation. Jefferson planted so many varieties, some of them obscure even today, to see what would do well. Everything was for the future of America, right? 
to decide in which direction to go. For Rause, the future is the next generation. He's handed off a lot of the decision-making about the wine that carries his name to his sons and daughter-in-law. They've opened a beautiful tasting room, and you can find their wines in restaurants and shops across the state and Washington, D.C. Their work and the work of many other winemakers continues to figure out what Virginia wine can and should be. A wine that tastes not like France or California, but a wine that tastes distinctively like Virginia. Wilson Sayer produced this episode and Daniela Irby edited it. Who gets thanks, Melissa? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milan. Proud mama of new baby Kirk. <laughs> Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Join us at our spring symposium. That's March 28 in Birmingham. Among other smart folks, you'll hear Jason McCall, who teaches at the University of North Alabama. He's a poet. He'll blow your doors off. Visit southernfoodways.org to purchase tickets and learn more. And if you love this podcast, share that love. Tell a friend and rate us on your podcast player. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear. And wine. There there was wine in this episode.